Tonight I wanted to begin with a poem that I recently received. Uh, it was a poem written by a young girl in New York who is terminally ill. And she, as her dying wish, wanted to send a letter to people telling everyone to live their life to their fullest. And so this is called Slow Dance. Unfortunately, I didn't receive her name. Have you ever watched kids on a merry-go-round or listened to the rain slapping on the ground, even a butterfly's erratic flight or gazed at the sun into the fading night? You better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. Do you run through each day on the fly? When you ask, how are you, do you hear the reply? When the day is done, do you lie in your bed? with the next hundred chores running through your head. You better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. Ever told your child, we'll do it tomorrow, and in your haste, not seen their sorrow? Ever lost touch, let a good friendship die, because you never had time to call and say hi? You better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. When you run so fast to get somewhere, you miss half the fun of getting there. When you worry and hurry through your day, it's like an opened gift thrown away. Life is not a race. Do take it slower. Hear the song before the music is over. I was very touched by this poem. I think anyone close to death has a perspective on life that we can fail to see in the midst of busy lives, in the midst of moving so fast. In being here, we probably all have some idea of this, as in life here, we are moving in a much slower dance. It is also the dance of learning to live life to its fullest. It's not the dance of wild abandonment, but the dance of paying attention to this body-mind process. It's not a dance that is only based upon sense pleasure, but the dance of wisdom unfolding. It's the dance of touching into the wisest place within so that we may hear the song before it's over. In doing so, we find that the quality of mindfulness is a quality that will help support us in this dance in paying attention, in really becoming intimate with this body-mind process. So tonight I would like to speak about this quality of mindfulness. So mindfulness, what is it? Sometimes I think it gets surrounded by a lot of mystery, and it's not so clearly understood 
that we may make it out to be something quite complex in our minds. And yet, there is a real simplicity to mindfulness, where mindfulness is just being able to know our experience. There's a connection with experience, and through that connection, the experience is illuminated, seen clearly. And this happens uh, prior to putting a lot of overlays on experience. It is not about judging our experience, but it's just the direct knowing of experience. And it's something that happens very effortlessly when the mind is undistracted. When we can remember to be present to our experience, knowing is simply there. Sometimes mindfulness is referred to as being a reflective awareness. And the reflective awareness is a mirror-like quality, that capacity to know experience without thinking that you have to do something to make it into a better experience, without thinking that you have to change it in any way. You know, a mirror simply reflects whatever steps in front of it. So in our experience, it might be a moment where judgment arises. If mindfulness is present, we know it simply as judgment. It isn't then that we say, oh my God, you're a horrible person, look at you, you're continually judging. We don't create an identity. It's just a moment of judgment. It becomes very freeing. It becomes a great relief. We can put down the whole story of who we think we are and just simply know the experience in any moment. So mindfulness is a real presence of mind in the present moment. And this presence of mind is steadfast. It doesn't wobble. One time I came across this book that had the title, Above All, Don't Wobble. And this is what mindfulness helps us to do. Because it's unwavering. Because it's not thrown about by what it sees, what it knows. It just reflects. This capacity has a great strength to it. Because it is non-reactive, it can pierce through that conceptual level of life, the ideas we have about life, the ideas that are a great fiction or a misperception. You know, it's simply from not seeing clearly. We don't have to feel bad because we you know, have these habits that keep creating stories. But we can look a little closer, really connect with our experience in the moment. 
And this helps to bring about the blossoming of wisdom, where we can penetrate through this conceptual layer of experience and come to know the true nature of reality. This brings us into a deep intimacy with life. It's actually quite interesting in that, you know, many times people will have a fear that if they really become mindful, they will become deadened. And yet, mindfulness brings us closer to life. We come to know this body as, you know, a vibrating mass of different experiences. We come to know this we, mind in ways that we may never have been able to open to before. That we can know sadness. We can know anger. We can know desire without being swept away or tormented by these states. And there is, you know, there is this fear that people have that something will really be lost if they become mindful. And yes, there is something that will be lost. And it's really our misperceptions. And when we let go of these misperceptions, there comes a place of non-separation, where there isn't this small, separate self that is standing separate to experience. There can be an experience of the river of life moving through us that is deeply connected. We're moving into autumn here now. And if any of you have ever been in this area before, autumn is a truly beautiful time. You know, it's a time that for myself, if I'm not in retreat, I love to drive around and see the beauty of fall. You know, the trees uh, turn so many different shades of colors, exquisitely beautiful, goes through uh, different timings of the changing of the colors. You know, we might soon get a lot of deep reds and pinks and then yellow will come and then it'll turn golden. It can be exquisitely beautiful. One year I was on retreat and it was actually in a, a center in Vermont. I was in a little retreat cabin and I arrived at the beginning of the turning of the leaves. As I went into the retreat, I kind of wondered how it would be to just have a very limited view on life there. You know, I was sitting in this little cabin and I, I practiced outside most of the day. And in front of me was a field surrounded by trees and across the way was a, a mountain. And that was my whole view of the world because I never went outside of that area. And so, you know, I sat through all of the changes that fall brings, the colors, the scents, the, um, the different weather that comes with autumn, just all of the changes. And so at the end of it, I just looked back and I thought, you know, I had the thought, well, how was, was it to sit here through autumn? And the response that came was, I was autumn. Autumn had lived through the sense doors. You know, that there was all of the rich smells that come, the sights, um, 
you know, changing in birds. There was just so many changes. And they had all been experienced through the sense doors. And what I also realized, it was one of the few times when I had been through this season where at the peak of the season there wasn't the grasping, the clinging, the wanting autumn to stay suspended in its fullest, which if you've been through autumn here you know that that might be one day, two days, usually at the maximum three days. I mean, it passes quickly. And, you know, I've experienced it before where I just, it's like wanting to paste all of the leaves on the trees so they don't fall. But this year, when there was just this deep connection with the experience, it was, there was no grasping. There was no clinging. Experience was just what it was. And there was no need to try and change it, to prolong it. It was allowing things to be just as they are. We can really notice how this quality of mindfulness helps us to feel alive by noticing the difference between when we're with the breath and it's really rote. You know, that maybe we're noting it in, out, rising, falling. And there's no sense of connection. There's no intimacy. Chances are boredom creeps in. Restlessness creeps in. It becomes agitating, disturbing. There's no sense of peace, tranquility, equanimity. And then notice the times when you really connect with the experience of the breath. What it's like then. How the breath is so fresh. It's so alive. We don't know what's going to happen in the breath. You know, one breath may be really smooth and fine, and then suddenly conditions change, and it becomes tighter, more contracted. And then maybe it eases up again. Or maybe you're just with the beginning of the in-breath, and suddenly it stops. And it wasn't like you told it to stop, but the sensations just stopped. And then maybe there was the falling. And with the falling, the breath completely disappeared. I actually remember a moment in my own practice when it disappeared and I got panicked, thinking maybe I had died. You know, it becomes so vibrant, so clearly seen. And, you know, it's, it's so pure in some way. We don't carry a concept of the experience. And this is what happens when mindfulness is present. This is the intimacy that it brings us into. One of the challenges of mindfulness is that it is really so simple. The knowing of our experience. We live in quite an intellectual culture. A lot of value is given to the intellect. And so, for many of us, this is just too simple. We would rather be able to think our way to liberation. Think our way into knowing the true nature of reality. 
And so we can find it very disarming to be with our experience in such a simple way. And so we try to make it harder for ourselves. Or, you know, and, and I think many of the techniques that we're given need to be given because we can't rest in this simplicity. It's too disarming. So that's just the way things are. So we get our techniques, we get help, uh, we get ways to find, to support the strengthening of this quality of mindfulness. we find that mindfulness really does take us into a radical departure from the way that we commonly live our lives, where we are so often trying to manipulate experience, trying to change it, trying to make things better. And, you know, it just allows us to be with our experience. It's radically different. A friend of mine calls this the U-turn to liberation. You know, where, and it's really that U-turn where on one level we've been looking for happiness outside ourselves, trying to get things right, trying to get the conditions of life just right, and then we will be happy. But in that U-turn to liberation, it's that turning towards the mind, turning towards simply knowing of this experience and finding happiness within this not needing something different in our experience in order to be happy. This can have a very profound impact. Not to underestimate it because of its simplicity. The word in Pali that mindfulness uh, is the translation of is sati. And sati, literally translated, means to bring to mind or to bear in mind. And how that relates to meditation practice or practice in life is it is that memory to remember to come back that aspect where we forget, we have habits of distraction. You know, we are just used to living in a very distracted way, where we aren't fully connecting with this moment. We may be thinking about this moment, but not connecting with the experience of this moment itself. We might be planning the future, remembering the past, thinking about what we're going to say to somebody, but we're not actually connecting with the experience. Even in our sitting meditation, many times we might be thinking about our meditation, even thinking about the breath, rather than experiencing in this moment. And so mindfulness is that factor which helps us to remember, come back, connect, be with this experience. I find it quite amazing to notice how there can be a strong intention to be mindful, to stay connected, present in each moment. 
and that there is just such a habit of distraction. And so, you know, in one moment being present, the next moment, off, you know, traveling the world, off um, fantasizing about being somewhere else, off planning what might our life might like look like after retreat, planning what we might do when we get up from a sitting, planning where we might walk. And, you know, it happens in just a split second. That's okay. That happens. The function of mindfulness, then, is in that moment of recognition of what's happening to reconnect in this moment. At first, in practice, we'll find that a strong effort is needed to remember to come back. We really have to apply ourselves. And then, at some point, we might find that this memory to remember becomes quite effortless. There's momentum. And we may discover an unfabricated mindfulness the natural knowing quality of the mind. With mindfulness, there are two ingredients. The first ingredient is that of the active, that of bringing the mind to the experience, to the present moment. And then there's the passive ingredient, which is that of receptivity, non-interfering, being able to see things just as they are. The active ingredient, the memory to come back, the actual application of energy to connect with this experience is often difficult because we have spent so much time in our lives uh, planning in distraction, spacing out, And so, at times, we will find that we need to work very resolutely. We need to work with a great firmness in our our intention to be mindful. Sayada Upandita, a Burmese master who was actually here last spring, uh, Sayada Upandita has been very influential with many of the teachers of IMS, and, and many of you have probably sat with Sayadaw Upandita, or at least know something of him. Uh, he's, he's quite a warrior-like teacher. And you know, he, there's no room for laziness in practicing with him. He really demands a lot of his yogis. And he describes mindfulness as being very dynamic and confrontive. He says we can't be lazy about it. He says, in retreats, I teach that mindfulness should leap forward onto the object, covering it completely, penetrating into it, and not missing any part of it. So sometimes um, we can have this tendency to not really bring forth that energy to connect with the experience. But the connection with experience is important with mindfulness. Sometimes it might be that we're mindful of disconnection because there is the lack of energy, but we're connecting with that experience. All we can do is call forth as much energy as we can to connect 
with the experience in this moment. And to know it fully, no part left out. To really allow the mind to drop into the experience. When I sat with him a couple of years ago, he kept, uh, the translator kept using the word plunging the mind into the experience. And you know that really helped me. I had a sense of just diving into experience with eyes wide open and just knowing it fully and immediately. There is a few ways that we can support this memory to remember, this active ingredient. In meditation, just the postures themselves can help remind us to come back. If we're sitting in an upright posture, this is supportive to wakefulness. And you know, if we're sitting upright, and it may be that we space out, but it can be just by noticing the posture that we remember that what we're actually doing is sitting meditating. Now, I know many times it's helped me to remember to come back to my experience. In walking meditation, if instead of just walking and going for long walks where it's easy to get lost in thought for long periods of time, we just simply walk back and forth, uh, you know, find a place where we can do this, this gives a bit of structure a bit of support. And so, you know, when you have become lost and you recognize it, it's, it's like just, we re- remember that we're not going anywhere, we're not caught up in what we're going to do, that we're just here to walk step by step. Sometimes we can experiment with standing meditation, where we use the posture of standing. And again, for whatever reasons, this is not something we do very much in our lives. So just the posture reminds us that we're meditating, that we want to stay connected to the present moment. And standing meditation can be a really helpful practice if we're experiencing a lot of sleepiness. So it gives us support if we just stand up and be present with our experience. It helps us to remember to connect with our experience. And even in laying down, you know, laying down is not a practice that we emphasize because it is so easy to just fall asleep. It is easy to drift. But there may be times in our life where we need to practice laying down. So if at these times, if we lay down and maybe raise an arm, this helps to give support to that memory to come back. You know, I've seen it in my own experience where I'm doing laying down meditation and before I can recognize that sleepiness is present, the hand starts to wobble and it just wakes me up, reminds me, brings me back. And so just simple ways in using the posture help to give support to coming back, connecting with experience. We can also find that mental noting helps to give support. It will help us to see at times when we're not fully connecting with our experience. You know, I've experienced this in walking meditation where I might be noting right 
as I put down the left foot. You know, and it just, if I went in the moment of noticing it, you know, my left foot is being planted and there's the noting of right, it just points out to me that I've not been paying attention. I've moved into moving mechanically. And so it helps remind me to come back. It also helps to strengthen perception, to really know the experience. Earlier in my own practice, you know, I had this ability to sit down, um, and for whatever reasons, there wasn't a lot of physical pain at that time. Unfortunately, that hasn't lasted forever, but it was the way it was then. And what would happen is I would go into you know, a really pleasant state. I'd sit 45 minutes, an hour, sometimes even longer. And you know, it would be like sitting in this pleasant fog. I'd get up at the end of the sitting, and I really wouldn't have a clue what happened during that time. And so, you know, if that happens to be the way your practice is, mental noting really helps to connect and know the experience. It helps us to see clearly. When we use any experience at any of the sense doors as an opportunity to be mindful. This means that, you know, if we're being with the breath, which we use as an anchor much of the time, but if we have learned to be mindful of hearing, of mind states, it means that this, any arising experience can be a moment where we remember to connect with experience. So it's not the thinking that we need a different experience in order to be mindful. So we use any experience to be mindful. And then any of these experiences become a support to our practice. We may find that experiences through one of the sense doors uh, are easier for us to connect with the natural quality of mindfulness such as being able to connect with the experience of hearing. And in doing so, there is sound arising, being known, and passing away again. And there's no you know, wanting a different sound. There's no trying to change the experience. There's just the mind resting and the knowing of this experience. So in these cases, we might find it helpful to let that be our anchor but we also broaden the practice to include all experiences. We can also find it helpful in supporting this active ingredient of the memory to remember to come back in making more effort to slow down. When we slow down, we begin to experience things on more of a microscopic level. We see things a bit clearly, more defined. And what happens because of this is that we might begin to notice quicker when habits of distraction set in, when the mind starts to wander. And so we come back quicker. With this to say, 
It's not straining or fighting to go slow, but really letting it be a relaxing into the experience. And just with that natural relaxation into experience, we begin to see it clearer. With daily activities, the simple chores we do throughout the day, brushing of the teeth, going to the toilet, having a shower, we can pick activities and work with just one activity in a day, bringing the same integrity that we bring to sitting on the cushion. And we might, for that one activity, do it really slowly paying close attention. This will help support the memory to come back. It brings a continuity into the practice. There comes a challenge when we go through difficult times in practice, which we often do. We might be hitting deep Uh, emotional pain, inner wounding. We might be experiencing a lot of agitation, restlessness. And so the desire to come back, the desire to uh, be with our experience is not very strong. It can be helpful to reflect on how valuable it is to bring mindfulness to these experiences, how necessary or helpful it is to illuminate the phantoms in our mind, to illuminate these places of wounding. You know, in the past we may have had habits of denial, suppression, uh, where we cut off from the experience. Because, you know, as a small child, we don't know what else to do if we're in the midst of trauma. And so we do. We shut down. We, we protect ourselves in unhealthy ways that keep us feeling separate and alienated in life. But with mindfulness, we can inquire. We can look deeper. We can learn to stay in balance. We can touch into old, wounding places of pain. And in doing so, this frees the mind, unbinds the heart. So the active ingredient of mindfulness, this memory to come back, to connect with experience. And then the passive ingredient being that of seeing things just as they are. Now this is the coolness of mind that is non-reactive, that gives a steadiness to the mind, that brings such relief, that has this mirror-like quality It also has a quality of friendliness to it, acceptance. You know, we can embrace whatever experience comes our way. There's not the accepting or the rejecting. This is what helps us to keep our practice simple. Simple.
a very simple example of how mindfulness becomes steady, becomes penetrating through just the accepting of experience, the not doing anything with it, can be how mindfulness can take us from having a concept of a body, a body that you know many many times we may have reactions to, we may not like, uh, at times we may really like, enjoy. But when we drop below the level of concept, we come into experiencing this body as it is, the heat, the tingling, the prickling, um, vibrations, the movement, It's a very different level of experience. Very different than the story about what this body is. It has an immediacy to it, a direct knowing. So mindfulness, having these two aspects of active, the remembering to connect with the present moment, and the passive, the meeting that present moment just as it is. We find with mindfulness that we can become mindful of all aspects of experience, both on the cushion, off the cushion. Mindfulness is something that we can bring into every corner of our lives. And the Buddha described this in the way of developing the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishments of mindfulness. And this is, he's highlighting aspects of experience which when we keep turning our minds towards these experiences, they really become the foundation for mindfulness. The first foundation of mindfulness is that of mindfulness of the body. This foundation is very readily accessible to us. It helps us to be able to walk with our feet on the ground. It helps us to be able to eat and know that we are eating. It helps us to be able to stay in contact with this body, to take care of this body. It's a helpful foundation to work with because the experience of this body can be quite coarse. It's not quite so subtle as the mind can be at times. So it makes it readily available. That it's easy to sit here and know touch points. It's easy to sit here and experience the breath, to know the rising and falling, or the in and the out of the breath. It's easy to have a tactile experience of this body. And so, for this reason, we often use it as our anchor in practice, the place that we return to over and over again. A challenge of it, though, is that it's not always a pleasant experience. This body can be subject to a lot of pain, discomfort. You know, it's just having a body is not so easy. Uh, Sometimes it's sick, it ages, it will one day die. 
And so when we use mindfulness of the body, it is also going to bring us in touch with all of these unpleasant aspects of the body. Actually, I remember uh, when I first really started using mindfulness of the body and discovering all of these held patterns that the body has of holding. And, you know, the question came up, why do I want to do a practice that is going to increase the sense of suffering? And yet, in doing so, it helped me to see how the idea of pain can be a way where one really holds, solidifies pain, and the actual experience of discomfort can just be experienced as unpleasant sensations that come and go, that are not permanent, that are impermanent, that are always changing. If we pay attention to mindfulness of the body, it helps us in the aging process to really learn to see how impersonal this process is, to see how painful it is to hang on to a young, youthful, healthy body, that that becomes suffering if we're attached or identified with the body as being self. We come to see this for ourselves. So it helps us to age with more grace, more ease. It helps us, when we're sick, to be able to be with the discomfort, to have a tool where we don't have to disconnect, we don't have to uh, run away from the experience. But just by knowing this experience, resting in the coolness of the experience, the mind's not caught in reactivity to the sickness, the illness. So the first foundation, mindfulness of the body. The second foundation is mindfulness of Vedana, or the feeling tone of experience. This being the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality that is present in each arising experience. This is a very important foundation of mindfulness because when we don't pay attention, it is almost on a cellular level that when we have pleasant experience, there's the moving towards the experience, the grasping, the the relishing in that experience. When it's unpleasant experience, there's the distancing, the cutting off, disconnection, or aversion to the experience. Or when it's a neutral experience, simply spacing out, not paying attention, which is disconnecting. We find that this feeling tone happens on contact with any experience. When, for example, there is a sight, there is an object that is seen, which connects with the the eye, and in that connection, there is the knowing of the experience. With this will come either the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality that is based upon past conditioning, that is based upon perception and memory. This pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality 
isn't an absolute truth. We all experience this differently. What is pleasant for one person may be unpleasant for another person. It could be just the scene of light. If in our lives we have uh, damaged our eyes, the scene of that light might be experienced as unpleasant. If we are a person who is afraid of the dark and light comes, that might be experienced as very pleasant. We will also find that in our own lives, things don't stay always pleasant. You know, it doesn't mean that because in one moment we experienced something as pleasant, that we will in future moments always experience that as pleasant. Things change. What's pleasant in one moment may become unpleasant in another moment. I once had a teacher who called uh, mindfulness of Vedana, or the feeling tone of existence, he, he said it was the shortcut in meditation. You know, and I actually have been meditating long enough now where I don't believe that there is any shortcut in meditation. But I do think that what he was pointing to is that when we are mindful of the feeling tone, it can stop a whole cycle of becoming. You know, the cycle that happens when there's pleasant experience, we move into liking of that experience, we move into wanting, grabbing onto, identifying, trying to make happen again. We just experience pleasant. It's just pleasant or unpleasant. You know, we don't move into the disliking, aversion, wanting to get rid of. It's simply unpleasant experience. We're really meeting experience in that moment of connection. So when we become mindful of this foundation, it keeps us from living a life where we become addicted to intensity, where we're continually moving after pleasant experience to uh, you know, get a high or moving away. We just find that when we're not aware that we start really craving intensity. And so this helps us to say, to have a wakeful attention, a wakeful presence, even when things are neutral, when nothing strong is happening. And the breath is a really great training in this, because for many of us, the breath is neutral, or relatively neutral. And so by learning to be present with this neutral activity, it helps us to learn to be present to any experience. And you know, there's many times in life where we will have neutral experiences. Maybe in our work, we have repetitive things that we do over and over again. And this is a time when often we will space out. But if we know how to have a wakeful attention that doesn't rely on this intensity. It opens us up to having a wakeful presence in all life's experiences. The third foundation of mindfulness is that of mindfulness of the mind or consciousness. 
And with this foundation, we find that there is consciousness itself, which is the knowing that we experience, where we know our experience. And there's also the colorations of consciousness, or the factors of mind that arise. These colorations of consciousness often color our view. You know, it could be anger, it could be lust, it could be joy. And when these factors are present, they color the consciousness itself. And when we aren't aware of these colorations, they become the view of life. They become the, you know, where we think this is what's true, and it's simply a coloration of consciousness. And so it becomes important to learn to recognize these colorations. This foundation of mindfulness helps us to become really intimate with the mind and all its complexities. Uh, The mind can seem very complex and often solidified in, like just feeling solidified around anger. And yet when we bring mindfulness to the mind state of anger, we see that there can be anger. Underneath the anger, there may be a uh, being hurt. There may be sadness. It helps us to touch in and unpack that which seems solid. And mindfulness of mind can be seen as really becoming aware of the atmosphere of the mind. You know, sometimes the atmosphere of the mind might be really dense, other times it's really light. And you know, this is kind of the coloration of consciousness. So we just learn to pay attention to the mind itself and all its colorations. In this way, we learn not to take these colorations of mind such as anger, lust, as to be who we really are. We see their passing states. We see them in their arising. We see them in their passing. We see them in the changing. Through this, we really come to know our minds. We come to be really honest with our experience. You know, if we have the idea that it is bad or wrong to experience anger, it's hard to come close to it. And we want to deny it. We want to suppress it. But when we can just be mindful of anger, when we don't take it personally, it allows us to come to know anger without feeding it, without fueling it, without turning it into the story of our lives. We stop trying to conceal our experience. And this, too, brings us into this greater intimacy with life. The last foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of dhammas. Mindfulness of mind objects or phenomena. The Buddha spoke very specifically about this. This is where he, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, spoke about, pointed to some of the lists that he is famous for. Uh, He spoke about being mindful 
of the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, being mindful of the six sense doors, both internally and externally. He spoke about being mindfulness of the five aggregates of clinging. And he brought it into the culmination of the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. What he pointed to when he ran through each of these lists was really learning for ourselves what helps to cultivate happiness in our minds and what leads to greater suffering and to really understand how these forces function in our minds. We begin, like, just to take, for example, he spoke about uh, contemplation of the dhammas of the five hindrances. So, in to being able to learn to recognize when desire is present in our experience, when it's absent in our experience, to be able to learn to recognize what are the causes and conditions that give rise to the arising of desire and what helps to keep desire from arising in our mind and what leads to the abandoning of desire. And what we find is that when we apply ourselves to practice, this understanding arises naturally we begin to see for ourselves. Some people at times get distressed about this fourth foundation of mindfulness being something that we have to memorize all these lists that um, we can't, you know, can't even remember what they are. But really, if we really apply ourselves in our practice, we will come to understand for ourselves this fourth foundation of mindfulness. But it also can be, you know, if we remember the lists, at times we might actually look and see, are the hindrances present? Are the seven factors of enlightenment present? We can work directly with um, the five aggregates of clinging. We can work with the, the sixth sense doors. We can just look directly and see what's happening in our experience. So these four foundations of mindfulness, they are foundations of mindfulness, ways we can turn to experience that will help us to establish mindfulness. we find that mindfulness becomes greatly strengthened through the continuity of mindfulness, where we link one moment of mindfulness with another moment of mindfulness. This helps the mindfulness to become stronger, more penetrating, to have power. In our practice here, taking care as we move from sitting to walking, as we do our daily activities. It helps us to stay fresh with our experience. It helps to give the strength and power to mindfulness. 
it can seem like a lot of hard work to think of being mindful in each moment of our day. But when we combine it with the quality of care, it's a simple expression of caring about our lives, bringing a heartfelt care to this moment, a presence of mind to this moment, because this is the way that we can live a life of non-harming. This is the way that leads to liberation, that leads to the understanding that frees the mind. Through this mindfulness, we develop a deep intimacy with life, where we no longer live under the illusion of separation. I think it's important to remember that we're not practicing to be mindful for the sake of mindfulness of itself, but because it helps us to pierce through the conceptual mind into seeing things as they are, where there can be a true release of the heart. Nyanaponika Tara, who is, who is a German-born Theravadan monk, says of mindfulness, Mindfulness is of an unobtrusive nature. Its virtues shine inwardly, and in ordinary life, most of its merits are passed on to other mental faculties which generally receive all the credit. One must know mindfulness well and cultivate its acquaintance before one can appreciate its value and its silent, penetrative influence. Mindfulness walks slowly and deliberately, and its daily task is of a rather humdrum nature. Yet where it places its feet, it cannot easily be dislodged, and it acquires and bestows true mastery of the ground that it covers. So mindfulness is this freshness of mind, meeting experience, no expectation, no judgment, no analysis. It is what allows us to live the slow dance. It is what helps us open up to the capacity to hear the song before the music is over. Opening into the immediacy of life here and now to see it and know it in its true nature. So let's just sit for a moment.
May all of the wholesome energy of our practice be dedicated towards the alleviation of suffering and the liberation of all beings everywhere. So closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings. <clears throat> now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest God and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth and the lord of death may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life may they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.